0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to
1: the Choir Fam Podcast. I'm Dean Lethe, the Director of Choral Activities at Washington State University. And I'm Matthew Myers, the Coordinator of Choral Music
0: Education at Washington State University.
1: In our discussions about the current state of choral music and what it will look like in the future, we agreed that more conversations need to happen to bring the choral community together.
0: And that's why we're here. We bring guests from the worldwide Choir Fam onto the show to share their wisdom and help make our choral world a little bit closer.
1: By speaking with our guests, we hope to provide interesting tidbits of knowledge you could use in your day to day rehearsals and give you a sense for how issues that matter to all of us are being observed and addressed.
0: We hope you'll enjoy these conversations as we work to strengthen our choral community. Welcome to the Choir Fam. Well, hey, Dean, happy Monday.
1: How's it going? It's going okay. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited. It's concert week coming up here. We have our first sort of public performance, and that's coming. Well, not public performance, but performance on a stage, I guess we could say. That's uh, coming up here this weekend. Students are really excited about it. It's really going to be a great uh, uh, exhibition of the work they've done so far this semester. I'm very excited. What about you? You're on that concert, too.
0: Yeah, so we have class on stage in about an hour and a half, which is awesome. Um, it'll be great to have our first time in that space. And yeah, Community Choir's got their concert uh, the following weekend. So it's um, programmed note writing time. So yeah, getting everything ready to go um, for for our events coming up. It's pretty great. Yeah. So, uh, so Dean, you were kind enough to invite our guest today. Um, can you let us know how you know him and why you've brought him here?
1: Absolutely. So I don't know Arianne personally. Um, Arianne is someone that uh, I look to get to know better and think that uh, perhaps our listeners would as well. Um, Last year, the WSU Concert Choir did perform. I've been in the storm so long. And that was a really, really wonderful piece. I just got to say, our students really loved it. So that was awesome. And uh, of course, uh, for those of you that are a part of the ACDA Facebook page, uh, Diversity Initiatives, of course, you see his name uh, all along there too. So this is an opportunity for us, you and Matt, to, me and Matt, to uh, get to know uh, him better, but also for our listeners to uh, get to know someone exciting in our, in our world.
0: So here is a little bit more about our guest. So Arion A. Harley Emerson graduated from Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, with bachelor's degrees in music theory and composition and vocal performance. He received master's of music degrees in choral conducting and vocal performance from the University of Delaware School of Music and is a doctoral candidate and university fellow at the Boyer School of Music and Dance at Temple University in Philadelphia. He has had the opportunity to to conduct in venues such as St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City, the Kimmel Center for the Arts in Philadelphia, and the Joseph Meyerhoff Symphony Hall in Baltimore. Mr. Harley Emerson has held a number of teaching and artistic director positions. He served as Director of Music and Operations of the Choir School of Delaware from June 2013 through December 22. In this position, he was responsible for the musical components of the renowned choir school program, as well as serving as executive director, managing the day-to-day operations of the organization. An avid researcher and presenter, Mr. Harley Emerson, has contributed a chapter to the Oxford Handbook for Choral Pedagogy entitled The Gang Mentality of Choirs, How Choirs Have the Capacity to Change Lives. He also has a TEDx talk with the same title. And contributed to the research literature regarding culturally responsive choral and classroom practice. Committed to the principles of access, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and restorative practice, Mr. Harley Emerson has established a thriving consultancy to assist arts and culture nonprofit organizations in remaining relevant in the 21st century. His work includes longitudinal studies, strategic planning, board excellence training, resource and asset development, and board diversification. Mr. Harley Emerson currently serves as the national chair of the American Coral Directors Association's Diversity Initiatives Committee. An active member of the Wilmington, Delaware community, Mr. Harley Emerson is on the Delaware Arts Alliance's Board of Directors, where he serves as president of the board and chairs the Advancement Committee, which is tasked with fundraising, membership development, and DEIB.
1: So, Arion, thanks for joining us and welcome to the Choir fam.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm just really humbled to be here. So, thank you for the invitation.
1: Well, we love to hear that. Thank you so much for that. That's great.
0: Yeah, it's so great to have you with us and yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about your story. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, so, we do ask all our guests the same question to start things off. Um, it's open-ended on purpose, so wherever you go is great. (laughs) Um, So how did you fall in love with choral music?
2: Oh, that's such a great question. Um, Gosh, I cannot remember a time where I wasn't singing. So let's say that, um, you know, my mom has all of these like, you know, old school, like the big camcorder recordings of me um, as a a kid. Um, Matching pitch and things like that, like as a um, little 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 wee lad, um, basically a baby. Um, I my first um it, it's really interesting that you say that. Um, I used to respond to that question, um, saying that I was seven years old when I joined the Peabody children's course. I remember walking in. Um, I had an audition to have gotten in. Um, and I was really excited for rehearsal, and I heard some of the um, older kids rehearsing, and they were singing the Hans Leo Hassler Cantate Domino, and I had never heard polyphony like that in person. Like maybe in a car commercial, maybe in a movie soundtrack, but like live and unplugged and happening in an, a beautiful acoustic, I had never actually experienced that before. Um, and so that was definitely um, uh, another awakening um, of my of my being um, uh, to choral music and to life in general. Um, but as I've gotten older and I've really thought back about this and I've thought more um, about, um, how how we can continue to expand the bounds of the vocal arts and choral music and group singing and group musicking, Um, I now um really think about some of those really formative experiences that I had in church. Um and I started singing, you know, at age four in, in our children's choir at church, and I was singing with the adults um very soon after that when i was six um so and and those experiences were amazing um and i went to a church had a large music program a great choir great um praise team so i was singing in both large and small ensembles i was um, put on the piano bench and the organ bench as <laughs> as a little kid. And that's how black musicians are trained in the black church. You know, you sit on the piano bench or you sit with with someone at the drums or, or with the bass guitar and you begin to learn and you get to do more and more and more and more and more until you're playing a full service. And so I was so fortunate to have that rich musical upbringing um, in my church, which I um, for a long time felt like, oh, no, that's just informal musicing. Like, that's not what people are asking about. And it really took until well within my 20s and 30s even to even begin to even acknowledge that that was really um, some of my first choir and group singing experiences because I myself had like you know disregarded those. I was like, oh, that's just church. Um, but I, I cite both of those examples because they're equally important to who I am and my identity as a person, both, you know, music, um, you know, the black diaspora, but also love Western choral music, love polyphonic music, love all of it so much. Um and both um I think we're just completely emancipatory experiences that I was fortunate to have that just really opened my eyes, my ears, and my heart um, to all that choral music could offer.
0: Awesome. Now, when was there a point that you thought, hey, I think I want music to be my career. It's not just something I love, but this is going to be what I do for my life.
2: Like, I knew, like, I knew, like, age seven, I I really, I felt I was at that point, I was like, I'm going to be like a solo singer. I'm going to travel the world and, you know, do all these great things. I really was like, I'm going to be a gospel singer. And like, you know, that was kind of like, what the dream was for a long time. And I think when I And I loved conducting. Whenever I got to conduct the children's course, that was amazing. And so I always knew that conducting was going to be a part of my life and teaching was going to be a part of my life. But I thought it was going to be a performer until I was in high school. And so I grew up in Baltimore um, and I um, we we had like choir adjudication festivals and we had a madrigals group. And Paul Raritan, um, uh was the director of choral activities at Towson University at that time. And he came and he did um a work, uh, like an adjudication of uh, a magical set that we were doing. And he spent all of his time on the warm-up piece. And I was like, what, what is happening? Like, you know, like we sing all these great things. And the, the warm-up piece was the William Bird non nobis domine. So it's just a canon surround. um, but it's beautiful. And he started talking to us about renaissance arch structure and all of these sorts of things. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Then he started putting it together. And it was that day that I was like, I'm going to be a choir director. Who could have known that music could be so beautiful and so elegant and so thoughtful and cerebral? And I had... You know, I had a great musical upbringing um, at the conservatory, you know, um, great, rich musical upbringing in my church. But that was the first time I saw a choral conductor who was in front of my eyes, just completely transforming a sound with such ease, with such and um, like musical and creative intelligence all at the same time. Um, so it was really profound. Um, and I'm uh, really fortunate enough to call him both a friend and mentor at this point. And he's also here <laughs> at Temple, uh, which is one of the ways that I also got here as well, because um, I just, sometimes you get to have your kick and eat it too, and sometimes your heroes inspire you, and you get to follow them around and do, uh, you know, doctoral work with them. So uh, I feel very, very lucky in that in that regard.
0: So when you were looking to go ahead to study music in school, so mm-hmm. you chose the vocal performance as well as music theory composition. Um, how did you decide which avenue of music you wanted to pursue? And yeah. And how did that take you into the world of conducting?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I knew vocal performance was going to be there because like, you know, I, I, even though I I play piano and all that stuff, I always feel like my, my, and I I don't know that I would say my primary instrument, um, but my most expressive instrument is, is, is my voice. And I think there's a difference between your primary and your most expressive instrument, but my most expressive instrument is definitely my voice and then um, at that point, I just always loved theory. Um, I always was um, very, like, curious about, like, what, what are the relationships between these dots on a page? What does it all mean? And then I got into composition and um, I was doing a lot of writing, um, a lot of arranging of spirituals. I've got probably, I don't know. 70 to 80 arrangements of spirituals uh, most of which are not even living anywhere but these were just things that i was just like writing um whether they were for my high school choir um you know other choirs that i was in in the community and and when i was in college too did did a lot of um, those sorts of things so that's how i got into really theory and composition Um, and i love it and i never thought of it as being like a huge asset until like later in life when, uh, well, certainly I knew um, um, in undergrad, I didn't realize that theory was something that people like, it was like, difficult for folks or that they didn't like it or enjoy it like i was like you don't love theory like our old skills we had etss ear training sight singing like i was like you don't just love this isn't this so fun like the finding german six chords is just the most exciting thing and everyone was like absolutely not um and so i didn't know that that was a thing or a fear so i definitely went in um, fearless and um that kind of analytical approach has been a big part i think of my. The way I bring music forward to others, I'm definitely super analytical about that. And then um, I think with the composition piece, I got into composition not and and writing and trying to understand this notational language, um, mostly because I was doing so much music in the church. And, you know, it's a completely oral tradition. And when I wanted to do like anything from church in my high school group, which um, I received a ton of podium time, Uh, we didn't really have a stable high school director at that time. So, um, you know, I received a lot of opportunities and I wanted to bring a lot of that music forward. And so I was transcribing things. And so, um, and I didn't know that That was like a skill set. I just was like, oh, I'm going to transcribe that. And oh, I think I can tinker with it a little bit. And so I didn't know that it was like arranging. I just thought I was just taking some songs that I really loved and um, uh, making sure that I was teaching them the same way each time, because that's <laughs> uh, one of the challenges of teaching in the oral tradition is there are so many variations and you have to remember, Did I do that with, you know, this church or that church, or was that with the youth choir or the adult choir or the high school choir, the community choir. And so it was really a way for me to be able to keep everything straight. And then I just got totally obsessed with notational language. Awesome.
0: So then would you were considering, you know, Hey, I think um, I think I want to go to graduate school. Um, yeah. How did you decide, you know, to do two degrees at once? You know, uh, was that something that you were going to be able to do at every school you looked at, or were there only particular places that would let you?
2: Yeah, th- it's definitely the latter. There were only uh, there. Were <laughs> I, and I, I have such strong feelings about this. Um, there were many schools that were like, well, you have to choose, or you do one and then you do the other, that kind of a thing. Um, and now it d- definitely took me longer. So it took me three years instead of two years to get through um, everything because. You know, it takes you longer because you have more classes that you're taking. But it was really important for me to do both choral conducting. And I had done a lot of conducting in my undergraduate and in high school. So I knew that I wanted to be a conductor. My internship, I interned with the Peabody's Children's Course from my senior year in college all the way, uh, senior year in high school through my senior year in college. So I was having significant podium time. I was doing a lot of teaching in high school. So I knew that I needed to do choral conducting, but I also felt like I wanted to continue to sing and all of that. So University of Delaware was one of the few places I was like, yep, you can do them both. I fell in love with both DCA director of choral activities, Paul Head um, and what he was doing there. And I also fell in love with my voice teacher there, Noelle Archambault, Dr. Noelle Archambault. She was just amazing. um, Really super like dialed in. Uh, It was the first T- music teacher of color that I ever had. She's Latina. Um, and so that was a, a big draw um, for me going to University of Delaware, in addition to the, the choral um, activities that are going on in, in Paul's program, which is quite fine. If you're not um, familiar with the University of Delaware Chorale, I strongly encourage you to check it out. Um, but Noel's teaching was so scientific, which again, I have a very analytical brain, really worked for me. Um, she was the first teacher, like I had done a little bit of different music, some musical theater, a couple of spirituals here and there, but, um, was really the first voice teacher that was really promoting, uh, you know, that I explore music of the black diaspora. That was the first time that I had even like, I was like, no, I do black music at church and, and of these other settings and not in this academic setting. Like that's not like really where their serious study. Um, and that was the first time. And um, it was just so eye-opening. And she had come from teaching at both an HSI, um, um, so a, a Hispanic-serving institution, and an HBCU, a historically Black college and university. And every single lesson was like way more than an hour. We were talking about all these issues and like really challenging paradigms, Um, that are out there in both the choral and vocal ecosystem, which are quite similar, but of course are divergent at points. And I was thinking everything from Britain um, to spirituals, to gospel, to musical theater. Um, I am a countertenor, so that's another thing that is like a specialty area. Um, and so you're doing a lot of early music and a lot of super contemporary music and a lot in the middle. So you're doing like super edgy works um, and super old works and you're super like particular about performance practice. So that was a really um, incredibly rewarding experience, all of which um, was also feeding me chorally as well, um, which is so funny. Like when you see, you can really see kind of how all of this, particularly Music of the Black Diaspora, particularly about expanding of what we consider to be the vocal arts. Um, a lot of that came from a lot of those studio experiences with Noel and just spilled over into the work that I was doing with Paul and pieces that I was looking to learn. And um, at that time, I had discovered some composers that I had never heard about before, like Margaret Bonds and Florence Price um, and William Grant Still. And these are names that people are learning about now. But at that time, I was fortunate enough to be able to start looking into these works and have uh, mentors who were helping me to to introduce me. Um, uh, to to uh, to this great literature. And so um, it was an amazing time. And so that is what made me, that is how I kind of, my graduate experience unfolded. And, um, but I really chose University of Delaware because I knew I wanted to do both. Um, and I also, they have a really strong musical, music ed program at University of Delaware. And so I've always felt like a teacher at heart. So even though I didn't do that graduate degree in music education, um, I knew that I was going to be able to stay in that world as well, and to you know keep my foot in that door. So, as you uh,
1: completed those degrees, uh, where were you thinking life would take you? Are you thinking I need to get my doctorate, or I need to sink my teeth into something else? Where, where was it? Where was your head at? And then finally, what happened?
2: Yeah. I, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I'm going to get my doctorate in music because like, you know, I knew all these people with like doctorate degrees because I was at the conservatory where everybody had a DMA. Um, and so um, I was like, yeah, that's the track that I want to go. And I guess it was probably when I was in my undergrad, I began to like shift. And I was like, no, I'm going to be like a music teacher. I'm going to go into the classroom. Um, that's what I really want to do. Um, so. Even though I was going to grad school and co-conducting in voice, I was still anticipating the classroom really being what was next. And I was in the classroom. I actually, while I was in grad school, I was teaching in high school in Philadelphia. Um, and so I was doing that concurrently and um which was great. Again, uh it was probably, you know, way too much on my plate, but I, you know, I guess I just am a glutton for punishment. So I just dived in and I was, you know, trying to be a first-year teacher and graduate student at the same time and trying to learn all of the things about how to run a classroom, how to run a choral program, how to actually conduct a four gesture or a two pattern, taking voice lessons. So it was really great. It was um an uh it was a really immersive experience because I was learning from these really wonderful people and I had a laboratory of my own. And I will be very clear, particularly when it comes to choral conducting, the podium is the best teacher. Um, And you learn so much from being on the podium and responding in real time and exploring. And so um, I just think that we need to explore choral conducting and vocal performance as um more exploratory more like a lab than uh an uh, than like oh yeah i'm just going to like a conducting class but really thinking about it as a laboratory um and going in with the intention of trying some things having a hypothesis of how you think it will is going to go uh and then seeing how it actually goes and then seeing what comes back, because what comes back at us is data. <laughs> uh, and then analyzing that data and that student and seeing a response and then making adjustments from there um, and seeing if your your hypothesis was, was correct or not. So it was a great great um, time to be doing that. I definitely was thinking the classroom. Um, I did not anticipate leaving the classroom. I thought like, you know, I landed immediately a really great um, high school job in Philadelphia, one of the top world programs there. Um, we had a harp studio. So like I had, I was doing ceremony of carols every year, every single everything from like carols for choirs we were doing, all of like the carols with harp, you know, we were doing all of that kind of repertoire. So super advanced stuff. Um, and I loved it. And the only reason why I ended up leaving there um for some time was um the choir school opportunity opened and someone who was actually doing um some work with me um uh, at UD and had done had done some observations with me teaching and was singing in chorale um, which I was assistant conducting at that time uh, was uh, a section leader at the choir school and I was like hey you need to know about this maybe you should come to an even song and like it seems like you're really committed to like um, you know black and brown communities and music education and access and all these things and I was like oh absolutely not they're looking for someone with a doctorate um, and she was like, I'm going to text you every hour on the hour until you apply. This was like a few weeks into our conversation about this. And I was playing in a church. I was on the organ bench and the phone was buzzing and it just went not stop. And so that evening I went home and I put together my resume and cover letter and the rest was history, a decade, uh, went by. And it was um, one of the most rewarding experiences uh, a lifetime, uh, to be able to work with an intergenerational choir that had a professional scola that was a professional choir as part of it, and these amazingly talented kids, and we were doing performances every week, and touring, and traveling, and, um, you know, we were experimenting with so many things. When I say laboratory, you know, I was experimenting with gesture, I was experimenting with colors and vowels, because of course we were in this English choir school, uh, this Anglican paradigm um, and school, yet at the same time, we were a majority uh, black and brown um, singers. And so I was like, what does it mean to sing our music? And so bringing that in and how do we teach both? Um, and so I was really in 2013 trying to really tinker with a lot. Um, I, I had no idea that this would become the central dialogue um. For maybe our time today in choral music, about how we're continuing to expand the vocal arts, and how we are being culturally responsive, and and how are we able to be pluralistic, and uh, music in many different kinds of ways, and authentic, um, uh, and authentic and culturally valid ways. So um, it was really a great experience, and no, I didn't see it coming, um, at all. <laughs> so as you were
1: working um, the choir school of Delaware, you had mentioned earlier in your experiences that I just didn't know that when I was teaching, when, when you were taking, when you were taking voice, you mentioned, I just didn't know I could bring in this, this, um, this music that I've been singing, this black music that I'd been singing. And so how did that go over with, the uh, kids at the choir school when you brought that in, how did yeah. that go? Was it just like, this is our music. We can sing this too. I mean, how, how, how did that go?
2: Yeah, that was it. That and literally, it was like it was like we had been living in, and you know, my predecessors were wonderful. Um, all of my predecessors were white men and were phenomenal, brilliant choral directors and organists. Like, you know, the the, particularly the organ facility was just out of this world. Um, and so, uh, they were just incredible and had really built like a really a long-standing program. The the program is 150 years old, right? So, like you know, just a legacy of true musical excellence. um So, what I was bringing to it was really an expansion of what musical excellence is. So, I remember the first rehearsal. Um, you know, we were doing some England Chan, and we were doing some, uh, we were doing singing Dyson indeed. That was the first piece I was introducing to them. And then we went on to um, the Hogan um, "Right on King Jesus," and I just remember everyone was like, "What?" And I remember being like, "Oh no, we're not singing this like a spiritual like you might sing. Like we're going to do this thing, like you know." Um, And the kids just loved it, and they couldn't get enough of it. And the adults who are part of the choir was intergenerational; um, they loved it, and immediately it was just like it's as if. It was the first time that we had ever seen like lights. Or the first time you have ever like bite into an orange and like it's so beautiful and juicy and complex in flavor and flavoring, like, oh my God, what is that? It is just like a revelation that this thing could happen. It was a revelation for me. Um, it was a revelation for all the singers, for the organization. It led to a lot of rebranding of who we are, our values, what's important, whose music is important, what is the right balance that we should be doing and striving for? So it it was. So well-received, so well-received. And um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And uh, it really set up the, I guess, really what has become my life's work. And, you know, I began like, you know, just documenting what we were doing. I did a lot in the oral tradition. I just began talking about how I had learned gospel as a kid, how I had learned spirituals. I had started like doing presentations, publishing. I had started, I just, just was writing about all of this because I knew that it needed to be documented in some way. I wasn't some like, like, oh, I'm a researcher. Like I totally didn't um, think about it. I was just like, I need to capture this and make sure that I'm able to replicate it. Um, again, I'm, I've am i got a really analytical brain. So um, I kind of think about everything as like sciency. Uh, so I was really just trying to like get it down. And then, you know, people are like, oh, tell us how are you doing this? And how are these kids doing this? And like, you're singing like, Richard Smallwood, and you're also doing Stanford, and you're also doing Palestrina, and you're also doing Margaret Bonds and Ulysses K. And I was like, yeah, it's great. Come in. And so um, it was just, I felt like I had finally found a place where I could express my full musical identity because it had been fragmented in every other professional setting that I had been at every educational setting that I had been at it was just like oh now we're going to do this you know even even when the high school that I was at I was like you know I was afraid of like doing too much black music you know Be- I mean I definitely did but it was just like you know I didn't want to do too much because I was like I don't want it to be the only thing that they do. And, and we've got to work on music literacy and we've got to do all these things. Otherwise we won't be a legitimate choral program. So when I went to the college school, it was truly the first time that I was like, you know what? You can have your cake and eat it too. There is a better way. There is a more efficient way um, of us being and knowing and musicing. So then how did it work out that uh, your journey
1: led you to temple? How How did that work out?
2: <laughs> That's a funny story. So y'all already heard about Paul Raritan. So I like was always like stalking him, and I was like, Paul Raritan. and I would always just look up to see where he was. So that was one piece of how I got to Temple. I just kind of tracked where he was going over time. But my good wonderful uh mentor teacher, um doctoral advisor, Rolla Dilworth, who is just been such a wonderful support system for me and teacher and guide through all of this. Um, In 2015, ACDA National launched something in Salt Lake City known as the Fund for Tomorrow. And the Fund for Tomorrow was brand new. And it was grants to help, you know, projects for at that time, we were saying underrepresented, at risk. You know kind of language that we probably wouldn't use today it's not as people-centric as we would use today um but at that time we um i was like this sounds great this sounds like our program what we're doing um so for context the choir school was um reaching out to majority uh, minoritized black and brown students in wilmington delaware um uh, students who Um, we're systemically disinvested in. um, And so I was like, this sounds like a really good match for us. would love to do some projects, bringing in, um, you know, um, some folks. And let me talk to like the Delaware um, president who at the time was David Lockhart, um, who passed away not too long ago in 2020, in January, 2020. Um, But at that time, he uh, he knew about the work that we were doing together at the choir school, and he was like, yes, you should totally do this. I'll help you with this grant, um, and that was really my entry into the world of ACDA, was that grant, and he introduced me to everyone. I was not a member. I, I, I was going to conferences, but I wasn't engaged. I wasn't really engaged with the with the state chapter. Um, but he totally brought me in the Delaware chapter rallied behind this project. And he was like, you know what, we should see if we can get Mel Worth to come in and write a, a choral trilogy, a three pieces with your kids and do a co-constructed piece. That's really like honoring the black experience. And I was like, we could never get that. And so I was like, well, let's see. And we put in the grant. And that's when I first met uh, Rallo, and um, were, he was so generous with his time. He didn't just write three pieces with us or just meet with us once. He came down multiple times, spoke to our kids. Um, He was engaging with the students, learning about their lives. And he was just so amazing and so good. And you, like, his musicianship is off the charts. And a lot of people think that, you know, oh, he does a really good job for like developing choirs, middle school choir music. Um, accessible high school choir music but you know that was not the kind of music that we did at the choir school like we did like satv divisi because we also had a professional scola and that and you know the english choir school you're doing the real thing so he came in and he was conducting all of the real thing and he was doing it on salt syllables and he was doing these amazing things with my kids and i was like oh my god this man is like there's so much more and like The choral ecosystem doesn't even realize how good of a a musician he is, and they have pigeonholed him into being this guy who writes three to four parts, you know, spirituals and gospel music, and I was like, there's so much more complexity to that, and um, I was just so amazed with how he engaged with the students, with our full body of repertoire, with his knowledge about Margaret Bonds and Margaret Bonds' credo, which he had written his uh, dissertation on, which nobody knew at that point. Um, and I was just like, wow, I have to keep learning. And so that project happens. The The choir performed these pieces uh, um, in. Um, So that project probably got launched in 2015. He started working with us 2016 to 2018. It was two years that we got to work together through that. Um, And we sang in 2018 at the Eastern Region Conference and then at the National Conference in 2019 in um, Kansas City. And so we were working now by the time all this happened together for a number of years. And he was like, have you ever considered grad school? And I was like, me? No. (laughs) Like, did the master's, did two of those, I'm done. Like, you know, and I, you know, at that time, you're really worried about moving and you're established and I have like an amazing program and it's hard to leave that. And he was just like, you know what? Not if you're at Temple, like you'll be just down the road um, from us. And um, we started having some serious conversations about that. And I started looking into it. And then I realized, I was like, oh, my God, and and Dr. Reardon's there. That's right. This is going to be great. And um, Elizabeth Parker is there. So for folks who don't know uh, Elizabeth Parker, she's just one of the most prolific, um, qualitative, uh, choral education researchers of our time. Um, and has been writing about lots of issues of belonging um, for a number of years and identity formation. So it was just three people who I was like a big fan of in one place um, that happened to be 30 minutes from my house. So I was like, I've got to do this. And so I took the plunge. I was able to keep my job um, at the school when I started. I was um, you know, I, I maintained that. And then um, you really, the rest uh, is history. So now I'm wrapping up and uh, um, I'll be sad when it's all over. Um, I'll be happy. Don't get me wrong, but I will be sad, um, you know, uh, because it's been such a great experience and Particularly, I mean, all of the music ed faculty and choral faculty here are amazing. You know, Destin Kate is here. Meet and die heart is here. Like, there are just so many wonderful people at Temple. Um, and I didn't realize that there were all these huge folks just um, in my backyard. So it's been really great. And I'll be sad to leave the owl's nest um, uh, and not having that, uh, you know, interaction with people on a daily basis. Um, And, you know, uh, even though they're all, of course, a phone call away or an email away, um, I will certainly miss it greatly.
0: You talked about getting a little bit involved with ACDA and Mm -hmm. opportunities that afforded you. Um, can you tell us about the diverse diversity initiatives? Um, how you got involved and some of the projects you've been a part of?
2: Yeah, so um, diversity initiatives committee is a huge commitment of time, <laughs> a huge piece of my life, um, and so um, it just so happens that um, that you know there was an opening that was happening. Uh, Eugene Rogers and Penelope Cruz were my direct predecessors of chair of the committee. Um, and, um, Eugene was just appointed the director of the Washington chorus. Um, so he was stepping away, um, from being a co-chair, uh, Penelope Cruz was, you know, the other co-chair at that time. And she was just elected, um, Eastern region president. And you, you can't hold those two positions. Um, you can't be a national, um, standing committee chair and a region president. So, um, the committee found itself at needing a chair. Um, at that point, I was not on the Diversity Initiatives Committee. I knew lots of folks who were. I was pretty close to the work. Um, and I had um, been doing, you know, work in my area in Delaware, um, but not on the national level. And, um, you know, I had expressed maybe I'd be interested in this to Penny, uh, Penelope Cruz, and um, I, of course, had a consulting background already I was through Equity Sings, which I had been doing for a number of years at that point in DEI. I had received training and certifications and you know, professional education already um, in that space. But I um, really came in through the door um, for diversity initiatives um, in early 2000. Uh, uh, it would have been 2019. I was reading an article in the Coral Journal. And at that time, there were 12 purposes for ACDA, and I um, noticed that diversity wasn't one of those 12 purposes. So I wrote to our executive director at the time, Tim Sharp, and I was like, hey, like, you know, this is a problem, like, you know, like, this, this can't this literally can't be in 2019. This just can't be a thing. Um, and so I sent this really like an impassioned letter and he was like, you should get connected with the diversity Initi- diversity initiatives committee, um, which was full at that time. You know, and there was no space on it. but I followed everything and um, had engaged with their work and long story short, in 2020, um, I um, you know, was nominated for that and accepted that appointment. And that would have would have been in that April time frame. Um, I had no idea what was happening in our world, what was going to happen in our world um when I took that position. And um I am so grateful for Eugene and Penelope Cruz who really hung in there longer and supported me <laughs> throughout that because you know I was coming in pre-George Floyd and like within Right as I'm beginning my tenure, you know, the landscape had completely shifted overnight, quite literally overnight. Um, And I remember the very next day, it was like we as ACBA, need to think about how we're how we responding for that. There were calls from choral directors. There were petitions. There were there was so much happening in the 24 hours after George Floyd was murdered. And I was just like, uh, over, completely overwhelmed, um, because it's like I had been working in my region, but now it was like thrust in the national dialogue about this. Um, and you know, our diversity initiatives committee um, had been doing good work, um, but it wasn't at the forefront of the uh, of what we were doing as a coral ecosystem. So um, in that time, uh, we really um, I shifted the, really the priority. Um, along with the committee members, to to being systemic change within ACDA and that we needed to make systemic change so that we could lead by example and encourage systemic change throughout the larger coral ecosystem. So at that time, we began to take a look at, you know, my background um, as a DEI um, consultant is in policies and practices and arts organizations. And so doing policy audits about where there were um, um, perhaps some opportunities for improvement. um, There was a lot of advocacy. Um, We realized that we as an organization needed to acknowledge our complicity in racism and the marginalization of voices. So, I mean, all of this was happening in like the days afterwards. And so that's when The committee got a lot larger um, presence online at that time. Um, Folks might remember a lot of letters that were going out at that time to membership, statements that were going out um, with various acknowledgments. Um, with commitments that we were going to do better, uh, we began taking a look at our conference policies, taking a look at membership policies. This set off um, the uh, bylaws revisions, which are still um, in process. Because you know what, change has to be both on an individual level, a systemic, uh, and a systemic level. And for us as an organization, as ACDA, that means we had to realign our policies and practices to um, align with our stated values, right? And so that was a a huge part of the work. Getting resources to people was a huge part of the work. Repertoire lists um, were going on at that time. Um, Bringing forth voices of Black composers particularly was huge at that time. Um, uh, uh, Doing training, like our national board um decided we were going to do annual training um, um, and, and implicit bias training and um, ADEI training and learning about that. We surveyed the members uh, to see where they were and what resources folks need and to get a sense on where we were as a coral ecosystem, which was a uh, super majority, uh, recognizing that we needed to be more inclusive um, and on a, a variety of, of various domains. So we've done a lot in the three years, uh, three and a half years, we have a new choral journal, our um, um, uh, column that is Lift Every Voice, which is dedicated to this. We've increased scholarship and have um, spurred a lot of scholarship that is around not just um, Black coral artistry, but about ableism, um, about um, still gender inequity. Um, a, a big piece was... Uh, transgender justice within our ecosystem. So we've taken on a lot of issues that um, have really come to the fore. We are not done yet either, right? There's still so much work that we have to do. I'm proud of the work that we've been able to do, proud of the work that my colleagues have been able to help with and to to shoulder and to move forward um, in both policy and practices. Um, I mean, taking a look at this last ACDA conference where I was just honored to be able to be a part of that planning committee, um, along with David Freiling and Penelope Cruz and Jay Saplan. Um, it it was amazing to see what the latest national conference looked like, in contrast to previous ones. Not to say that they weren't good; they were absolutely wonderful, uh, our previous conferences, but to see what other opportunities there were to bring other people in. It was great to see affinity groups meeting at our conferences. Um, so as many people know, it was the largest gathering of Black coral conductors in history. Um, in one space in the Coral Cookout, we had um, an affinity event for AAPI conductors. We had um, an affinity event for our um, Latino, Latinx, Latinx, and Hispanic identifying conductors. Um, it was really, truly. Amazing. It was amazing to have folks like the Jason Max Ferdinand singers alongside and contrasted by the crossing. Um, So I just felt like it was the beginning of a new way of understanding choral excellence and what that encompasses. Um, And so, as I say, we haven't arrived. We are only just beginning in this work. Um, But I feel like we're beginning. The work is finally that we are doing as a DIC, that we're doing as a, a national board, is only now beginning to be seen in a visible way and in heard in an aural way. Um, and heretofore, prior to this, um, I think this conference in this moment, a lot of it has been policy, has been uh, revising handbooks, has been taking a look at bylaws. So a lot of the nitty gritty work that nobody um wants to do and it's not cool and sexy and all of that, but is absolutely important. Why is it important? So that we aren't just a rubber band that stretches and expands and then snaps back to where we were before, but that we are forever changed by these experiences and that when we know better, we are actually doing better, as Dr. Maya Angelou is always saying, and that we are just finding a new way of being and musicking and engaging with one another. Um, and so that really has been a lot of the work that um, I feel just so fortunate to have been able to be a small voice in and a partner in um, along with so many others uh, members of our, our of our ACDA leadership. So it's really been the pleasure uh, of of a lifetime.
1: So uh some of the work that uh, you're doing there, you're also continuing in a new conference uh, coming up. Well, I guess it's not new this year. Uh, We don't have a lot of time, but would you tell us a little bit about this conference, this uh, Bent But Not Broken?
2: Yes, Bent But Not Broken 2.0. So we held the first one last year. Um, I was feeling in 2019 that we needed to have a conference that was going to amplify um, black choral artistry. And um, obviously the pandemic happened and that didn't happen in 20, nor did it happen in 21, uh, but it finally happened in April of 22. Um, And so that happened. Now this year, it's designed to be every other year. Um, So 21 was gonna be the first year and 23 was gonna be 2.0. So we are moving forward to 23 with um, Benfana Broken 2.0. As I mentioned, it is really taking a look at Um, Black choral artistry um, in a comprehensive way, looking at both idiomatic and non-idiomatic expressions. Um, We have a killer lineup. We have the Jason Max Fordian singers that are going to be there. Uh, We have the OG, um, uh, bearer of the spiritual, concert spiritual, uh, the the Fisk Jubilee singers are going to be there and they have a brand new director. Um, So that's going to be really exciting. Um uh Elevation, a brand new pro choir that I have the privilege of conducting is going to be there as well. Uh the Howard University Gospel choir is going to be there. We have hundreds, and I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Um, of singers in, in honor choirs. We have three honor choirs. Dr. Raul Dilworth is doing one of those honor choirs for intergenerational singing, which includes um, some of our ensembles at the University of Delaware, um, along with community ensembles, uh, a group, our local Joyful Noise choir, which is a choir of singers with, um, with disabilities. There'll be an, um, an intergenerational and um and a really diverse and ability uh, level ensemble that um, that he's doing there. Dr. Marcus Garrett is conducting our high school ensemble. Uh, Maria Ellis is doing our middle school ensemble. Uh, so there's that piece going on. We've got wonderful sessions by folks like Vinroy Brown Jr. Uh, We've got Dr. Jillian Harrison-Jones. She's doing um, intercessions. Dr. Kelly Dower doing intercessions. Dr. Um, Everett McCorvey is going to be there, who is the conductor of the American Spirituals Ensemble. Uh, So we're taking a look at all sorts of things. We're talking about appropriation. We're talking about performance practice. We have an immersion gospel choir um, where um, uh, participants will have the opportunity to sing with a real gospel choir, one of the first um, established in the country, the St. Thomas uh, Gospel Choir, uh, which is at the first free Black church um, located here in Philadelphia. Um, They will uh, be with us during the conference, and people will sing with them uh, to really learn about um, the actual style uh, performance practice of singing in this style, and everyone will be learning completely in the oral tradition and then putting forth um, um, a program of music as well. So concerts, sessions, there are workshops, um, there are also intra-cultural dialogues, so um, dialogues that are just for Black, identifying choral directors as well, and that are happening in affinity spaces, So it's really great. So um, for more information about that, you can visit ElevateVocalArts.org. So that's ElevateVocalArts.org. And you can go to the Bent But Not Broken tab. And you'll be able to find that there. You'll be able to register um, for that. You can register up through... Uh, you know, on-site registration. So come, um, even if folks are just checking out the concerts, they can do that um, as well. So again, it's November 1st through 4th. So that is um, a huge project um, that I'm excited to be able to bring into its second year. um, And it's our only conference that we have uh, that is this comprehensive um, and is really looking at uh, Black um, performance art scholarship. Um, and it's just really a a pleasure to be, uh, the curator, um, along with my colleagues, um, uh, to, to make this happen. So I'm, I'm stoked uh, about all of it. So that's, that's the big project
1: coming up. That's great. That sounds really exciting. And, uh, I'm glad that it's, that it's back, that it's coming. So, um, Matt, do you think it's time to transition over to our lightning round?
0: Yeah. So we've got a series of short questions for you, Arian. Um, Just whatever comes to mind as an answer is a good answer. Well, So just for our audience to get to know you a little bit more just as a person. Well, so sure. um, would you prefer to go on a beach or mountain
2: vacation? A beach,
1: 100%. What was your favorite subject in high school that was not music? Uh English.
2: Yeah, loved English.
0: If you could go to a concert to hear any performer, living or dead, who would you pick?
2: Miles Davis. Like, come on, like, come on, the musicianship there. I would love to see Miles Davis, the person.
1: Uh, what is the best
2: kind of sandwich? Oh, that is a hard one. You know, I... A peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you cannot replace a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich that has been toasted. Like, I mean, like making a peanut butter jelly sandwich, putting it in the skillet with just a little bit of butter so it gets toasted on both sides and that the peanut butter is a little melty. That to me is like, it's not sophisticated, it's not complicated, but it's sophisticated and delicious and wonderful.
0: I mean, melty peanut butter is one of the most sophisticated things I could imagine. It's not just, nice. yeah, that's perfect. Okay, here's our doozy question. If you had to pick one favorite coral piece, what would you pick?
2: Oh gosh. One favorite coral piece. I don't know that I can do that. Um I can tell you there there are, are just many just brilliant coral pieces that are out there. Um, I definitely think um I love Margaret Bonds' credo and her ballad to the Brown King. I think they're great. So those are, I would say, are some older pieces that I think are just wonderful. I think the Victoria. Um, Oquam Gloriosum is beautiful, um, and particularly in the key of D major. Um, I think it it is just absolutely wonderful. So I know I've given you more than one piece. Uh, But the piece that I love that is new, uh, that I am obsessed with right now, I had the privilege to record. Um, Alvin Trotman is a young Black composer. And he has a piece called Eternity, um, which happens to be the name of this album. It's built around this piece. It is seven minutes of just sublime singing. It is so gorgeous. It's written on a mystic text, um, and it is just absolutely beautifully written in every regard. It uses every single like area of the voice. It is high. It is low. It is mid. it, It takes you on a journey. It is just absolutely stunning. Everyone should be running to um JW Pepper wherever you get your music and ordering Alvin Trotman's Eternity. I really think it's all that plus a bag of chips. Nice.
1: Well, this could be the same composer. doesn't need to be. What is one composer that you feel needs more attention? Alvin
2: Trotman. Yes, absolutely. Um, I just the work is brilliant. Um there are just so many works of his that are not being um, commonly performed. Um, in addition to e- Eternity, the next one that I would recommend is his setting of Psalm 23. Um, so, um, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, all right, all that. It's great, beautiful panel accompaniment, an aleatoric section at the ending. It's just wonderful. He has also, um, um, uh, I believe it's an Rumque as well, which is just also just gorgeous and stunning with strings um which is just wonderful so just get ready for the name Alvin Trotman because that name is going to um certainly uh it's going to be at the fore pretty soon
0: awesome now uh what's your favorite memory associated with choral music
2: Yeah, okay, that's a good one. Um so um my choir was singing the week before the world shut down in 2020 and um we were singing on the Eastern Region Conference and um we um were we had a um um what do you call it? Uh we we were what do you call it? when you say something an affirmation circle there it is so uh, you know like we were getting we done we had done the first performance and we we're getting ready for the second one and I was like we don't need we don't need to do any more warming up we, there's nothing like it's it was great like it was everything was just spot on where it needs to be we're just jazzed with how it happened and so we did this a um, uh, circle and uh, we all said an affirmation for someone else so we we like you know said just just say one thing nice about um, someone else um, who's sitting next to you and at that point you know when you're putting together an ACDA program and you're touring which we, we were have been for about a week at that point leading to this performance you're all very close and it was amazing like I'll never forget it There there's so many tears and we like we could barely even go out there and sing we we did and we made it happen um but the moment um, so that was a beautiful moment. And that really had an. I thought the first performance was great and wonderful, but the second one was just so inspired. It just took things up like 10 times more. Like it just was like a whole nother level. Um, and the final piece that we sang um, was the Robert C. Gibson um, we Shall Overcome. This is before the Aeolians had popularized it and, and all that. So it was really a new composition that folks had not heard. And it's just a stunning composition. And um, again, multiracial group of people who are singing um, this piece. And I just remember silence, just complete utter silence as we ended that for, oh my God, it felt like an eternity. It might've been four, five seconds. But, you know, after a performance, that's a lot of time. Um, and I will never forget that that moment. Like just, you know, I was uh, everybody was crying. I was crying. The car was crying. The audience was crying. And it was just silent, um, completely silent. So I'll never forget that moment. It was so special.
1: Oh, uh, what is a project or a couple of projects you're working on right now that you're excited about? We heard about the conference. What else you got going on?
2: Yeah, so just um uh, well um a, a number of projects. Uh first and foremost, I would say is um just launched a new organization elevate vocal arts, which is the host of this conference. um, We were able to, um, we received a grant to really begin to push the bounds. Um, Notice it doesn't say choir. You're like, we don't consider ourselves uh, a choir, but a vocal arts um, ensemble. Um, And so this new um, organization is really not just a professional choir. Elevation is that professional choir, but we're also doing a lot of workforce development. So how do you actually make it as a full time vocal artist, whether that's a professional person singing in a choir or maybe you're a hip hop person or maybe it's spoken word or um, maybe it's um you know opera maybe it's it could be a lot of things but what are the ways in which we use our voice to be expressive um and how are we developing those skills um in a methodical way and how are we helping folks with job placement so that is the a new big project that i'm launching and you know this new organization with some wonderful colleagues of mine um and it has been a joy it is huge work um over the past year we launched this new professional choir um, one of the projects was an album. It's the Eternity album where the Trotman work is on. Um, we also launched a young um, artist program. We call it uh, Summer Institute. Um, it's where folks get all the skills that we don't learn in music school like, how do you market yourself? How do you interview? How do you do your taxes? How do you blah, 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 all these things. And of course, um, this program is open to anyone, but we are especially um, looking to engage. Um, those who have been historically um, marginalized. And so that has been just a joy um, and a pleasure and really great to be in this um, advocacy and kind of pioneering lane because we really don't have workforce development programs in the vocal arts. Um, And um, being able to also push um, the choral arts to not only be choral. Like, you know, like I never thought I was a choir kid when I was really young, because I was doing gospel. And I was like, that's not the same as choral. That's choir, not chorus, you know? So um, I think that um, expanding of what what is even possible is um, it's a real opportunity and it's a real privilege uh, to be a part of that work. So we've got a lot of things that are happening, including the conference, um, including some programs for uh, young artists ages 18 to 25, and for those who are already established and, and how we support them and, and build workforce development programs that will um, become a model for across the country. So uh, really exciting work.
0: Sounds like some awesome stuff coming down the pike. Really, really awesome. So, hey, if our audience would like to get in touch with you or find you on social media, uh, how can they do that?
2: Yeah, so um, you can find uh, my website. Um, you can navigate there. Send me a note through there. That's um, equity sings.com. So EquitySings with an S in the end.com, um, which has pretty much a, a bunch of stuff about me, about it. A lot of my work there, a lot of my you know, consulting work, guest conducting work um, is there. Um, and you can also follow me on social media, Um, I share a lot of resources. I do like a one-minute sermon about um, issues of access, diversity, equity, inclusion um, within the vocal arts. Um, I do that um, periodically, maybe once every three weeks or so. Um, And you can follow me on social media at Equity Sings. Um, So just EquitySings.com or just on social media at Equity Sings and you'll, you'll find me um and if you're looking to 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 learn more about this like new professional choir elevation which is part of um Elevate Vocal Arts you can just go to elevatevocalarts.com and you can download our album um and um uh, you know you can consider nominating it for a Grammy if you want I want to be mad about that um but it's on all of the streaming platforms um, so Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music—it's on YouTube as well. Um, if you look up Elevate Vocal Arts, um, you'll you'll find that um, on YouTube. So yeah, lots lots happening. I'd love Great. to stay. Well, it was wonderful talking
1: with you today, Arion. Uh, we thank you, our audience thanks you, and we're happy to call you a part of the choir fam.
2: Well, thank you, thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm Dean Leafy. I'm Matthew Myers. And you've been listening to the Choir Fam Podcast.
0: Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked the show, please rate and review. If you didn't like the show, please let us know how we can better serve our choir fam.
1: You can follow our Instagram page at Choir Fam Pod or email us at choirfampodcast at gmail.com.
0: We welcome all our listeners to be part of our mini Just look for our episode, mini Intro Part 2, from May 22nd, 2023, and send us an email with your answers to our
1: Season 2 Lightning Round questions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks again for being a part of the Choir Fam.